This is an Our Savior Evangelical Free Church podcast. To learn more, visit osefc.org. If you're in here, John 1, let's open our Bibles to John 1. This will be among the shorter sermons I've ever preached. I said among and shorter, not shortest. But here we go. It's a particular joy, actually, to preach on Christmas. Um, so let's start with a picture. Uh, maybe not so much a picture, but a line. It's a timeline. And so if I asked you to do a timeline of your life, what would you put on the timeline? You'd, you'd put the most important events of your life, right? You'd, you'd put uh, the day you were born. You'd put maybe the day you kind of graduated with whatever degree you were going to earn, high school, college, uh, secondary degree, and you had to go get, you know, real job. Uh, you'd put maybe the day you got married, when you became a parent. If you're old enough at this point, you'd put the day you retired, because that changes your life a lot. You know, maybe you'd put that day on there. There would be hard days on that timeline, too. There would be days with, with tragedy and all kinds of things. So you've got a timeline of your life. Now, draw that same line and start filling in the most significant things that you know about the life of Jesus on a timeline of his life. Now, it's different because you wouldn't, you know, have a place to start the line. So let's just start thinking of all the differences that a timeline of the life of Jesus is going to have. The beginning of the Gospel of John actually tells us that we can't put the day that Jesus was born as the beginning of that timeline. That's when your life begins. That's when your timeline starts. Jesus would have to have, if you're picturing it, maybe like an arrow pointing backwards. Because God the Son is eternal. So then what are the markers? If you've got a, a timeline with arrows on either side going in both directions, what else is on the line? You could put the day he was born, but that would be kind of, you know, in the middle. You'd, you'd put his death, you'd put his resurrection. I, you'd, you'd need to have the ascension in there. That's a big deal. That's where Jesus is now. In fact, if you want to know where's Jesus right now, he's in heaven at the right hand of the Father, waiting. By the end of history, you wouldn't put it on there yet, but you could put it some point in the future. You could put his second coming. I was trying to draw this, this timeline, and just to keep it simple, I think you need to have at least seven or eight events on the timeline of Jesus' life in order to understand who he is, what he's doing and what his mission into the world is. Now, Christmas Day, what we celebrate right now, and, and, and not coincidentally, John's gospel takes us to one of the most important days. But like I said before, the birth of Jesus, that, some, that starts someplace in the middle of the timeline. I, I could even make an argument to, to say that the passage that we're in today, Christmas Day, is the celebration of the climax of the good news of Jesus. And we sing all, all the time about the finished work of Christ on the cross. If, in fact, if I asked you, and you know the life of Jesus, what's the climax of the gospel? You're probably going to answer the cross. And I don't think you'd be entirely wrong. But I, I think we can argue from this passage that we're going to study this morning that the climax of the gospel is actually the day that Jesus came into the world. Again, we sing about that it was finished upon the cross, but it was started in the manger. 
and because God is who he says he is, there was no chance. When that baby Jesus was born in a manger, there was no chance that it wasn't going to be finished upon the cross. So what's the most important part of the gospel? It's the most important day in all of history. I think it's this. I think it's what we call the incarnation. So let's read just about this, this glorious day. We're going to read John 1, 14. I'm going to read to 18. We worked on 18 if you were here at the Christmas Eve services yesterday. But really, I'm just going to kind of work in, in a couple of verses this morning. So John chapter 1, verses 14 to 18. Follow along as I read. If you didn't bring a Bible, there's a black one in the pew in front of you. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me, because he was before me. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. So I'm going to concentrate on verse 14. We'll work a little bit in verse 16. But here's just what I'm going to say. This is kind of an extension of what was said yesterday, if you were here then. When God's glory comes, grace comes. If you're in Jesus... You have no need to fear God coming. In fact, that's a great opportunity for rejoicing. You have no need to wonder what it will be like when you see God because if you're in Jesus, when the glory of God comes, grace comes. And I'm I'm gonna say this in three parts. Part number one, the incarnation was glory and fleshed. Part two, Jesus is all of God's glory. Part three, When we receive Jesus, we receive all of God's grace. So the incarnation was completely glory and fleshed. Jesus is all of God's glory. And when we receive Jesus, we receive all of God's grace. So let's work in verse verse 14 primarily. And the word became flesh. Now, the word here, this is referring to the word from verse 1. So if you have your Bible open, just keep it open. Put your eyes in verse 1. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. So the word is eternal. The word is holy. And verse 3 tells us that the word is unlimitedly powerful. In short, you just simply say the word is God. That's, That's who the word is. Now, pretend you're having this unfolded for you for the very first time. You're, you're a first-time reader of John. So you've never read this before. You're just reading sequentially. Prior to verse 14, what we just read, you know what I just said about the Word. You know that the Word is eternal. You've learned that the Word is holy. You've learned that the Word is unlimitedly powerful. And again, prior to verse 14, if you've been reading, you would know that that John the Baptist was sent to prepare the way or to herald the coming of the word. But what, if you're a first-time reader of John, what you just learned for the first time in verse 14 is that the word became flesh. 
What's the first time you've ever heard that? You know the word is God, and you just read, God became a human. And if you're reading this for the first time, you're floored by that. In fact, if you, even if you've read this a hundred times, we should never get past this. The incarnation is a miracle beyond miracles. But you need to know more. We've got to, we're floored by that, but we need to know more. I mean, how does it work? Is the word still God? If, if God became a human on earth, who's in heaven? John tells us. He starts by saying, we have seen his glory. Whose glory? The answer is the words. And we know that because the glory is, in this next verse, glory as of the only Son from the Father. So God the Father and God the Son are our new categories. Again, we're just kind of putting ourselves in this, this place. We're, we're, we're first-time readers of John. So they're new categories for us. But the plurality of God, that's something that God's people have been familiar with since the very beginning. John, John is clearly alluding to creation here. If you go back and you just read the very first verses of Genesis, you have a triune God creating from nothing. The Father commands, the Word creates, the Spirit fills the expanse with God's presence. So that idea of God in three persons, that's not new for the people of God. But the categories of the Father and the Son, those are further explained here in the Gospel of John. So what kind of glory is it that, that we're seeing in flesh? It has to be unique. Glory as of the only Son from the Father. So, there's, so here's what we're just learning. There's one Son and there's one Father. And it's the glory that we're seeing in this word in flesh. It's that glory that we're getting now, and it's been there since the beginning. And how does John describe it to us? What, is, what are the characteristics of this glory? What type of glory is it? Well, John says that it's glory full of grace and truth. So how has this miraculous enfleshing come to be? Is it, is it, maybe is it a part of God that's, that's broken off somehow? Maybe is the word kind of a representative, like an ambassador? Maybe, but he's not truly the head of state. Is this some kind of a subsection of God? No. No, this glory that we can now see is completely God. Fully God. Glory is of the only Son from the Father, full. Not half, not part, not some, full of grace and truth. In Exodus 33, we read this a little bit last night. We're going to work a little bit later in Exodus right now. In Exodus 33, the Lord passes over Moses and proclaims his name. And names in the ancient world were often more significant than maybe they are today. It wasn't just something you were called. It was the kind of person that you were known as. Your name was an identifier, not just of an individual to set them apart from other individuals, but what kind of character did they have? How were they to be described? So in Exodus 33, 19, God says that when he calls out his name, you'll know that he's gracious and merciful. All that is packed into the name of God, he's gracious and merciful. 
But in Exodus 34, we learn a little bit more. After God has given Moses the law and it's been written down, God once again proclaims his excellencies as he sends Moses to give the law to the people. And this time it's slightly different. So if you heard last night, you read, we read Exodus 33, 19 together. This is Exodus 34, 6. Again, God describes himself. He says, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. And it's, it's that abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness that I want to focus on because it's in that that John is clearly wanting to draw a connection here to 114. So when John writes that, that the word is full of grace and truth, he's saying this is the same God who introduced himself to Moses in Exodus 34. This God then descended, only he descended in a cloud. He met with his people in a tent. If you know the story of how God came, last night we talked about this, you couldn't see him. He had to hide Moses from him as he passed by, and then Moses could look at his back. John is saying that this God now has stood right in front of thousands, tens of thousands of people. And the coming of this word into the world, that's not bad news. It doesn't mean things are calamitous. It's good news. Because in his coming, grace and truth have come. So God says of himself, I am a God merciful and gracious. So grace. Then he says he abounds in steadfast love and faithfulness. Uh, the second part is the connection that we're, we're starting here. When John says that Jesus is full of truth, what John means by truth is, is he doesn't mean that he's the true God, though he is. He's not doing a, a kind of cultural apologetic. Sometimes when we go to truth, our minds go, well, how can we prove the truthfulness of God, the existence of God, maybe the truthfulness of his word? Those are all good disciplines. Those are all good things. But when John says that Jesus is full of truth, what he means is he is full of steadfast love and faithfulness. In other words, when John says truth, he means that all that Jesus says he will do, he will do. That's what John means when he says he's full of grace, his graciousness has come, and he's full of truth. In other words, he's full of faithfulness. The same God that Moses could only catch a little bit of the glimpse of is now standing before him. And you have to know Jesus is different. We're so much more fickle as humans than Jesus was as a human. So when we say that he's truth, that he's faithful, that he's steadfast in his love, as true as our intentions are, we can never be completely truthful. We just can't. Even if you resolve to never tell another lie in your life and you are somehow able to follow through with most of that, you're still going to break your word. Let's just take something that I do about once a week. I tell my wife that I'm going to be home at 5.30. Almost every day from the office. I tell her I will be home at 5 or 5.30 or something like that. 
and about once a week, I'm significantly later than that. Sometimes it's because I'm on a roll and the kind of work that I do, when you've got it, you just gotta, get, you gotta go with it. Sometimes it's because I'm lazy and I haven't gotten everything that I needed to get done that day. Sometimes it's because I'm forgetful and I just lose track of time. Sometimes it's because I'm in the middle of a meeting or a call or something with somebody else and the kind of work that I do is not always the kind of thing where I can say, I know you're in an emotional crisis right now. I'm sorry, I have to leave. I can't do it. Sometimes I just have to keep going with whatever I'm doing. But even if my absolute intention is to get home at the time I say I will, I'm going to be late. Sometimes I just can't help it. Hey, you, you, we've all done this. We've left on time. We've given ourselves the proper time. We have car trouble. Now, would you call that an untruthfulness? Ah, in a sense, couldn't you? Couldn't you say if you said you'd be there at a certain time, even if your car broke down, you weren't there when you said you would be? My point is that this never happens with God. Ever. When John says that this word is full of grace... He means that when you repent of your sin in the name of Jesus, it will always be given. God will never say, I'm out of grace. He will never say, my grace has been exhausted because he is full of an unending well of grace. And when John says that he is full of truth, he means that he will always do what he promises because He never breaks his promises. He's full of truth. He is steadfast and always faithful. When you come to Jesus, you are coming to all the grace and all the faithfulness of God. You're not just coming to some faithfulness. You're not just coming to a little grace. You are coming to to the fullness of grace and truth. Next, Jesus is all of God's glory. But he's also a new way of seeing God's glory. So again, if you were here last night, Christmas Eve, uh, we talked about the connection between John 1.18 and, and a few verses before I just read in Exodus 34. In Exodus 33, Moses asked to see the glory of the Lord And God says that he will only be able to show him a little bit of it because Moses can't see his full glory and live. Now John's saying it's actually the exact opposite. This is a new way of seeing the glory of God. Not only Moses couldn't look at God and live. Not only is John saying now are people able to look at the glory of God fully in the face of Jesus He's now saying, you have to look at God if you want to live. Do you see the reversal of this? Before you couldn't look at God and live, now you have no hope of life unless you look fully into the face of God and Jesus Christ. There's no other way to live. You have to see the glory of God in Jesus. There's still more to these words. I could do a week's worth, uh, seven days worth of sermons on full of grace and truth. So God is gracious, but he's also holy. God cannot remain true to himself and allow sin to be in his presence. And the reason that Jesus is called grace and truth is that through his death, 
God could both punish sin and give grace. So Romans 3 says that in Jesus, God remained just and became the justifier. What that means is God's glory isn't reduced in his forgiving sin. It's not reduced in Jesus' coming. It's actually the fullness of glory. When God sends Jesus into the world and Jesus lives sinlessly and he dies in the place of sinners, he becomes at once the bearer of the punishment of sin and the one who saves from it. And that is a fuller expression of glory. It's a fuller expression of the greatness of God than anything had ever, than anyone had ever seen before that. Of all the miraculous, powerful things God had done up to that point, they all, frankly, pale in comparison to what God showed us in the death and the resurrection of Jesus and is saving us from sin. So Jesus is all of God's glory. He's not a part of it. He's not a subset of it. Jesus is all of the glory of God. And the last thing, part three, when we receive Jesus, we receive all of God's grace. So look at verse 16 now. For from his fullness, we have received grace upon grace. What does it mean to receive grace upon grace? Uh, here's what I think it means. To receive Jesus as Savior and follow him as Lord is to receive grace. But grand as that hope is, you won't come to that understanding on your own. Even to see Jesus, you need grace. So I think there's a double, when, when John says grace upon grace, there's a double grace that he has in mind for us to grasp. God first gives grace to see his glory in Jesus Christ. Then he gives more grace to repent of sin and be justified before God. And you need grace to do it both. If your hope is that you will see Jesus on your own and then be forgiven of sin, you haven't understood the fullness of the grace and mercy of God. You need grace even to see who Christ is. Uh, there's a time when Jesus raises a man named Lazarus from the dead. Lots of people watch it happen. It's widely known, in fact. Uh, but only a few of them understand what is truly happening. It's a miracle that Jesus does. But the true miracle, if you, if you read that account, the true miracle wasn't that a man had been brought back to life. God can do that. That, that doesn't take effort for God. It's not that he reduces some of his spiritual power, like he's got some kind of a, a bank that he, he, kinda, he dips into. The ultimate miracle of Jesus raising a man from the dead was actually that God was there in the flesh to do it. And we see only a few people present really get that. So after he raises Lazarus from the dead, Jesus asked this question. Did I not tell you that if you believed you would see the glory of God. The implication there is some people looked at that and were amazed that it happened, but they didn't see the real miracle. The real miracle was that God was in the flesh standing in front of them to do it. And if they would have believed in that, if they would have seen that, 
they would have seen the true glory of God. Instead, they were just amazed at something that for God is relatively simple. It's a simple miracle. One person comes back from the dead. Jesus is saying, no, 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 the real miracle is I'm standing here to do it. God is standing in front of you to do it. But only a few of you are going to actually see that. Folks, lots of people will see the evidence of God's grace. People will celebrate it all over the world today. But only those who see Jesus, who believe in him, will understand the way that God's grace has truly manifest itself in the world. So, so it's Christmas Day. People all over the world are going to be doing these kinds of things. They're going to be celebrating. be talking. And people, so what, what they're going to do is they're going to get together with their family and people are going to talk about their blessings. That's good. Talk about your blessings. Uh, some people even were going to say that, that they're celebrating the birth of Jesus. But what Jesus is saying here when he raises Lazarus from the dead, what John is saying here in John 1, are that lots of people will look at all the things on the periphery. They'll say, wow, I, I'm, I'm blessed. Look, at I have a, a, a nice family and a, and a warm home, and we have uh, special food here on the table. All good things. And they'll say, oh, we have children or grandchildren. How blessed are we? Or they'll say, look at all of the wonderful things that God has done in our lives, and they'll kind of reflect on the last year. But they'll stop short of saying, all those things are great. All those things are good from God. But what is really amazing is that God has come into the flesh and I might see him and know him. Only people who believe in Jesus will truly see the glory of God. And only those who see him and see his glory are given the gift of living under his grace. So here's my hope for all of us today. That God will give us the grace to see Jesus for who he truly is. That's grace. And then he'll give us upon grace. He'll give us more grace. So the first grace is to see Jesus for who he is. The second grace is to submit ourselves and humble ourselves and have the faith to cast all of our sins and our doubts and our fears upon him, to believe that they are paid for on the cross, and then to walk from today forward in the newness of life. That's the fullness of grace and truth. That's, that's grace upon grace. So as you celebrate today, Celebrate all of the good things. Praise God for all of the good things. But remember that the main thing is that God has become flesh, that you might see the fullness of his grace. Let's pray. God, may we see Jesus Christ who is to us grace upon grace. More than we deserve. And when we look upon him, may we see the fullness of you enfleshed. And may that be the reason, ultimately, that we celebrate today. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.
Our Savior is a congregation located in Wheeling, Illinois. Our vision can be summed up in four words, building community, bringing Christ. To learn more about this vision and our hope for our neighborhood, visit us online at osefc.org.